I feel like having the label of autism is seen as something that disrupts what our parents believe it disrupts basically their politics of respectability it's seen as a stigma because they see us as less than perfect beyond ourselves is a podcast where i taylor camille share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives for season two of this series we're highlighting stories from black men the stigmas around caring for their health and bodies beyond fitness and examining masculinity. As always, please share and subscribe if you haven't already. After speaking with Lauren Melissa and Tyla Grant about their journeys with autism in season one, I was looking to get a male perspective on the topic. This week we're speaking with Ash Brown. He is a Jamaican British writer, digital inclusion maestro, as he calls himself. He obsesses over tech, anime, he's also a podcaster, and he's in the planning stages of work that will help bridge the digital divide. By the end of our conversation, we felt like we needed to have several follow-up episodes to go in-depth about the nuances of our lineage as relates to how we approach health, masculinity, and many other topics that deserve their own space and their own time. But this was a good start. Here's Ash. I am Ash, I'm Jamaican British, I'm 28, I was born in London, born and raised in London, folks are Jamaican, diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome as it was known back then at the age of 15, so yeah that's it really. And you've been like pretty vocal about it, I mean I think what was cool about finding people, especially black people that are talking about it is it kind of puts a face to what seems to be overlooked, you know, I think a lot of times when I look at autism, either reports or other things, I was finding that it just wasn't very representative of all the people that it affects. And so it's been cool to see this kind of digital online community of people swapping notes and making safe spaces for people to talk about what they experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so something I... Yeah. No, go on. Something I had asked... So. Last season, I focused on women and Black women in particular. And I asked them, um, I, talk, I spoke to two women. One woman was in the UK, where you are. And okay. another was here stateside. And I asked them to define autism in their own words, because I think oftentimes there's these definitions, but they don't really match maybe what's actually happening, you know? Sure. Um, so what you'd like me to define autism in my own words? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can look at it very literally in that it's a, if you want to call it developmental difference or neurological difference that inhibits your social functioning. It can inhibit cognitive functioning and language development as one grows. However, that is to varying different degrees. Um, sorry, I've just taken a very literal, like almost academic definition of autism as for what it is to me personally it's an intrinsic part of who I am it gives me a differing perspective to other folks out there and it is inextricably linked to my very being as a black man as a cis black man it's part of who I am I live at the intersection of 
obviously blackness and autism and they cannot be divorced from each other mm-hmm. so that's what it is to me yeah do you ever feel like there's times where they've been divorced or people have tried to divorce them from each other or separate them in some way I feel that there are times when that happens especially when I have been around neurodiverse people who I wouldn't even say NBPOC neurodiverse people I'd say primarily white neurodiverse people sometimes trying and just see me as a person who is on the spectrum and kind of like divorce my blackness from it and Mm -hmm. I've had to kind of like hear microaggressions and kind of think to myself but hold up wait a minute did you actually just say what I thought you said and then I've kind of like just had to let them slide Mm -hmm. because I feel like in those spaces it's very much autism first as opposed to like obviously being somebody who is from a marginalized community so yeah like as I said the two identities intersect I'm not going to try and use the word intersectionality too much because I'm not an, I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to profess to be an expert on the works of Kimberley Crenshaw. <laughs> I've read enough, but I'm not going to profess to be any sort of expert. But yeah, like you have to take an intersectional approach to these things. Yeah. You were going to say something before when we kind of <laughs> bumped heads. Did you still want to say that? I can't even remember what it was going to be <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I hate when that happens. Yeah, that's very interesting because I think another thing we talked about in a past episode was just the word disability and how to reclaim that word as a positive word and to acknowledge that word as something that identifies people that need different things. It's not a bad thing. It's just like you need to kind of, I don't know, tailor your approach differently for this person. And I think when we think about the role that race plays into this too, I think that's very much important because the experience of a white person with autism is vastly different than a black person with autism because it comes with so many other things. Yeah, vastly, vastly, (laughs) vastly different. I mean, if we are talking about race, we can do it from two different angles. I mean, the angle that I mostly talk about it from and what leaves me most dissatisfied is Mm -hmm. how ubiquitous white faces are in the autism rights movement Mm -hmm. and it's only recently become somewhat fashionable or a la mode to include black faces or to speak up about diversity in the autism rights movement for example Mm -hmm. the national autistic society in the united kingdom who are probably the biggest Um, charity for autism advocacy in the United Kingdom have only Mm -hmm. just recently started doing more actions with regards to like including black faces black and brown faces in their campaigns speaking up about situations of injustice where black autistic folks have been mistreated by the justice system for example the case of Asim Brown who, like me, is a black autistic man of Jamaican heritage. He was actually born there, though. He was imprisoned for allegedly being involved um, in a robbery. Basically, what happened is he tried to stop the robbery and he was 
convicted under the disproportionately racist joint enterprise law mm-hmm. in america they have something similar i think in the southern states called the law of parties mm-hmm. which has been used i'm from reading it which has been used to like execute several black folks in texas and alabama and so on and so forth but let's not get into that and i'm going on a tangent there's injustice injustice everywhere trust me but yeah so he was charged under joint enterprise so at the end of his prison sentence the authorities want to deport him mm-hmm. and like they want to deport him to jamaica a country that he left as a child and where he has no support system or family and that's basically tantamount to a death sentence and that is something when I heard about it it was like how can an injustice like this occur especially to someone so vulnerable and I just my heart just wept so I've been trying to raise awareness of that but back onto the topic at hand like the National Autistic Society and other autism advocacy organizations only recently started making noise about that and Mm -hmm. only because they were hassled and because another organization called I think it was Autism Inclusive Meets which is Mm -hmm. a organization that has autistic people of color at the center they started making noise about the case and so did Neuroclastic as well another blog that's run by autistic people I'm actually well I've recently become a writer for them I haven't submitted any pieces yet but yeah so yeah in terms of like autism and race and being inextricably linked we really need to get rid of the monochromatic hegemony with regards Mm -hmm. to the um, autism rights movement that's the first thing the other issue with I feel like autism and race is how like black autistic women and other autistic women of color are just but specifically black autistic women are just completely marginalized and silenced Mm-hmm. like misogynoir plays into it misogynoir i mean like the autistic community or folks with autism or the neurodiverse community is obviously a microcosm of wider society so any oppressive behaviors or any structures of oppression that are present in wider society are going to be present in this community and misogynoir mm-hmm. is very much present in our community and as black autistic men, we really do need to speak up more for black autistic women and use our privilege to elevate their voices, especially within the autism rights movement. So yeah, those are my views with regards to like kind of race and autism and so on and so forth. Sorry if I was rambling a bit, but yeah. No. I hope I, I was coherent. All, you were, and those are all really important things. And I even had a question, you know, with the resurgence or it's not really a resurgence I guess just like wider I don't even know how to explain it but with this I guess reckoning this new reckoning I guess we can call it of Black Lives Matter happening on this global scale and then the Black Autistic Lives Matter spurring discussion too I think I saw you advocating for like the Matthew Russian case where that he was jailed like a car crash um, and all these cases that happen. And I think it's just, it's important. It shows you, like you said, the importance of community and having people that are blowing the whistle when these voices have been silenced for so long. And it's it's just interesting, everything happening right now. And it, it feels like there's some momentum and some movement, but it's been so long, like who knows? And I think a lot of 
black people are hopeful but it just it's also comes from a pain point of like we've been waiting and we've been here and we've been saying this so why why haven't you been listening is a lot of what I've been observing absolutely why haven't authorities been listening (laughs) they haven't been listening because society or western society at its very core or if you want to put it that or even if you want to say the anglosphere at its very core is built upon centuries of the subjugation of our ancestors and treating us as capital and the very foundation of this society is built on structures of white supremacy that run very 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 deep right to its core it permeates the organs of many many western states and to truly disestablish white supremacy you effectively have to tear everything down and that's not going to happen anytime soon is it (laughs) so yeah that's the reason why it seems like authorities are inert especially with regards to disestablishing structures that are inherently anti-black yeah yeah it's gonna be quite it's just I feel like we're like in a deep metamorphosis like this is going to we're in this cocoon for a while with each other if you look at even just the state of quarantine and this pandemic and yeah like I mean, and these obviously Western states are built upon a foundation of capitalistic economic systems, which are also built on foundations of the subjugation of black people. And for all of this to be torn down, for white supremacy to be torn down, we ultimately have to destroy capitalism. And again, that's not going to happen anytime soon, as much as I'd like to think it would be. It's going to take the complete and utter destruction of capitalism for anti-blackness to end as far as I'm concerned because the two things are intrinsically linked capitalism and white supremacy are interlinked one cannot exist without the other as far as I'm concerned yeah yeah they definitely fell of each other for sure sorry I'm being really really preachy no I love it I just I think it's important and I think I mean, these are your values and these are like topics that you care about. And I think that's that passion is it's palatable and important for sure. The other thing I wanted to talk about. I know I was just going to say, I don't want folks to think that I'm just this like wordy British dude. (laughs) No, they'll probably like it because Americans love British accents anyway. Oh boy. (laughs) He's like, that's a whole other topic. I don't know how true that is, but I guess. Sorry to give you that um, pressure. The other thing I was going to ask you in your intro, you, at least on Twitter, describe yourself as bridging the digital divide. And I wanted to just get more info on that. And I guess while we're in the space of talking about marginalized communities, um, what, so, that, what that looks like for you. So what that looks like for me is I kind of have like a five to 10 year plan of what I want to do. So I want to use open source software and operating systems and use it to revive older hardware. So by op- by open source software and operating systems, I mean GNU slash Linux. So like Unix-like operating systems, you know, like Ubuntu, Arch Linux, Debian, etc. Use that to revitalize older hardware and then give those pieces of hardware 
to autistic kids, kids on the spectrum, and teach them coding skills and prepare them with the digital skills to enter into the labor market and the jobs market where digital skills such as programming, video editing, audio editing are becoming ever increasingly essential. So that's kind of like my plan. I'm planning it at the moment. I want to obviously eventually set up some sort of like non-governmental organization, third sector organization to Mm -hmm. do these things. But yeah, I definitely want to focus on marginalized communities and communities of color, primarily communities of color with this sort of plan to bridge the digital divide, especially for folks on the spectrum and just neurodiverse folks in general, to be honest. Very cool. How did you get into the tech space and did you teach yourself or how did you kind of make your entry? Primarily in my role, what I do professionally, I was digital lead for my office in addition to my other duties of obviously helping people out of unemployment. So that was um, one thing people at work just kind of like lent on me to obviously help them with technological issues because I I don't know if I give out that sort of energy I also founded a technology blog with my friend Luke called Logic Face I haven't written for them in quite some time because I've been really really busy with like podcasting and stuff but yeah um, I taught myself obviously various like different types of programming just basic HTML and CSS and JavaScript so yeah I mean working in the tech space is something I would like to do one day full time. But yeah, that's how I go into tech, as it were. <laughs> Even though my job technically isn't tech, but I do carry out like digital duties as part of my um, job. Your work. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And I think another question that's come up in you know, various either episodes of this podcast or just even in my life talking about my health condition is like the question of when do you disclose? Like when, when do you find it necessary? Or, I mean, I don't know, I guess, do you feel obligated to tell either your job or new friends that you have autism or like, when do you, when do you disclose that? I always make a habit of disclosing it to people because it saves me a lot of trouble, especially when dealing with neurotypical people. Mm. So if they know that I'm on the spectrum up front, then it just saves me a lot of like trying to use a not trying to use a not completely British term for it. I, I want the British use, term. I was gonna use slang, but just saves me it just saves me a lot of yeah, it just saves me a lot of trouble, especially with social yeah. interaction. So if I interact with people in a certain way or if mm-hmm. I'm affected by sensory overload, they kind of have a forewarning if I react in a negative way, if they yeah. cause sensory overload or something like that. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. It saves you a lot of work on the front end to just say, than rather yeah. waiting till something happens. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like... It- with romantic um, situations, I always, always, always disclose beforehand, before the person gets mm-hmm. involved, that I am on the spectrum and that I've had this diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. Obviously, I know it's just known as autism spectrum disorder now because of what Hans Asperger was up to mm-hmm. during the Second World War. But yeah, um, I always disclose that I've got ASD, always. Yeah. 
Have you, I don't know if it aired in the UK, but have you watched that Netflix show, Love on the Spectrum, or heard about it? I've heard about it. I've heard it was made in Australia, so it was mm-hmm. painfully monochromatic. So I was just like, I somebody suggested it to me, and then I saw who the show focused on, and I was just like, nah. Like, where yeah. are the black faces? I was just like, nah. I'm not, I'm not it watching this. Terrible. At, <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. We're at a what? No, I was just gonna say, where are the black or brown faces? Like, yeah, it's it was really stark, and it was just very apparent to me. And I think I part of my work is also in media, and it was just like it's lazy to me if you only have one type of looking person, and and if that doesn't stand out to you when you even get the footage and you're looking at back at it, then that's even crazier that nothing crossed your mind or even if it did you thought that that was okay to just continue <laughs> in yeah. that way and it's it's frightening to me absolutely i'm like sorry to use slang but like it was actually kind of like it was kind of a maza like it was mad like it was a madness like how white the show was like it was yeah. absolutely insane and it's not like there aren't folks of color that live in australia i mean right. it's not like I'm, I'm sure they could have found some indigenous faces um right. for that show but nope yeah yeah there was like there was an asian guy and that was about the extent and we all know that they're like the model minority across the board so. i was just about to say that so yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's just really troubling i mean i found the stories interesting but it just I mean, that lack of color was just so in your face. And it, it just feels like it I it almost you take it personally because it's like, do you not want us to exist this bad? Do you not want our story shared? Do you like you start thinking and spiraling into like why would you make this choice? And why would you think that was okay? And you continually see like media show worlds where people of color don't exist fictional or reality and it's just bizarre to me (laughs) just really bizarre really 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 bizarre but what can you do i mean the people that hold the keys to the power are overwhelmingly white so you know what do you expect yeah yeah exactly unfortunately on the diagnosis front i wanted to ask you said you were diagnosed at 15 yeah what was that like yeah so i was medically diagnosed after having some issues at school let's put it that way what was it like it was i was kind of afraid of having a label at first but as i got older i read more about neurodiversity and the autism spectrum and it just made so much sense. It was kind of liberating to kind of know why I acted the way I did or why I was the way I did, why I fought the way I did and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in terms of like, because I know there's a big debate in the community about medical diagnosis versus self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. At first, maybe about a couple of years ago, I was very very much vehemently like against self-diagnosis but as I've interacted with more and more people and I've read more I realized that self-diagnosis is just as valid as medical diagnosis I mean in the United Kingdom having access to doctors because we have a nationalized health service Mm 
where healthcare is free at the point of entry, mm. it's a lot easier to get a medical diagnosis. It's not by any means like easy because it does take a while because you have to go through a general practitioner, a GP, then you have to get referred to a specific service. You have to go through different talking therapies and so on and so forth. There's like a long, long, long chain, especially when you're a child, you have to deal with these child and adolescent mental health services in each borough, at least in London anyway, mm. that can be very, very obstructionist, especially to black kids. But in America, where healthcare is by no means accessible to every single member of the population, medical diagnosis is definitely definitely a privilege so self-diagnosis is very much valid that's what i'm beginning to learn anyway mm-hmm. i mean what are your what's your take on medical diagnosis versus self-diagnosis i mean i think you brought up a good point it's like access is one thing so if you have access to professional help and even even sometimes if you do especially as black people you're discredited. Like there's many studies that, especially when um, diagnosing autism, the symptoms, especially in women, aren't aren't as like the same as they present in in men or boys, children. So yeah, women and girls get overlooked all the time anyway. So I think it does take like I don't know. It's I think I think it's important to know, or I guess to approach it in this individual sense, like. Like you mentioned, there were things at school that stood out, and I'm sure that prompted your parents to seek medical kind of attention. But I think, I think, you know, it's the onus is so much. I think on Black people, the onus is so much on ourselves because um, we can't really trust institutions to have our best interests or to, you know, listen (laughs) when when we're saying different things. So I think, I don't know, I think you have to approach it what works for you individually always, but I think there is there is this kind of almost a need for self, <laughs> at least first being self-aware, and then if you have access to having it um, additionally diagnosed medically, then I think that also is extremely helpful, you know? Absolutely, I couldn't agree more especially with black folks being underdiagnosed with regards to autism that can definitely tie into black children being seen as inherently naughty and just bad behaved as opposed to actually having neurological differences which are obviously never usually questioned by people that they would come into contact with such as educators in at the various stages of education and so on and so forth so yeah, self-diagnose it's for that reason that I feel like self-diagnosis is a valid tool, especially for marginalized communities who may be neurodiverse or who are neurodiverse, but don't have the privilege um, to access medical professionals to be able to get a medical diagnosis. Yeah, it's really troubling to me that Black children have to be on their best behavior, <laughs> I mean, and it's not even just Black children that follows us through adulthood, too. Like, we have to act above and beyond this kind of, like, social expectations where I feel our counterparts are just never restricted into behaving in such a way, especially when you're a kid. I think kids should be allowed to be who they are and also not be reprimanded or, like you said, seen as naughty or just, like, ill-behaved. Like, sometimes there's other things going on. 
And I don't know, there's, you know, there's lots of those studies about Black children in schools and them being reprimanded more by teachers for the same offenses as other children, but simply have a target on them because they're Black. And it's still happening. And so it's like, why? Why is it happening? And why is the compassion not extended to Black children? It's really troublesome to me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I I can't really add anything to that. You just put it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Do you do you have siblings and or did you have anyone in your family where there had been other instances or was this kind of the first diagnosed instance in your family? This is the first diagnosed instance in my family as far yeah. as I know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I mean you think of medical histories and it's possible that this could have happened before but who who knows back to the access it's like who knows if there was or wasn't. And and I think we also weren't given the tools of knowing how to work with it and learning how to, yeah. I mean, in it. terms of patterns of behavior, yeah, sorry, one second. In terms of like suspecting folks who may be on a spectrum, I suspect my old man might be, but again, I'm not a medical professional, so I won't be able to confirm that. But yeah, I don't know. As far as I know, I'm the first diagnosed instance. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's stigma around it, too. And that's probably the hardest part. Being of Caribbean descent and being on the spectrum, that's a whole different, that's a subject for a whole different episode. The stigma of being on the spectrum and being like within the Caribbean community, that's a whole different episode. I'm not going to, I can't delve into that right now. Boy, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just generally, if you open to how did how did you feel your family and friends kind of received it once once there was that final diagnosis? It's not my family. That's the issue. My my mom, my dad, my grandparents just kind of like surrounded me with love, to be honest. But other folks, boy, they just thought I was misbehaved. Basically, they just think I'm naughty and misbehaved and loud. Whereas that wasn't the issue. My parents were constantly explaining and so on and so on. I mean, he's just naughty. He's, you know, what is autism? He's not autistic. He's just naughty. Just in one, in one, two lit crossing bottom. In, in, he's just naughty. Like, him just need, co- he just need a couple claps in his head or whatever. Like, that's, that's all I encountered. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Especially with Caribbean communities being deeply religious. Again, that may affect how someone who is on the spectrum is received and interpreted yeah. how the, how their patterns how some how the yeah one second sorry how the patterns of behavior of someone on the spectrum may be interpreted by folks from those communities due to obviously yeah. their religion and culture and so on and so forth so yeah yeah it's quite complex we can't solve it all today but it's I think I really appreciate you talking about it because I don't, you know, people people are, but I feel like the the choir of voices will help us kind of get out of this darkness and this shame and this just confusion that I find ourselves in often mm-hmm. talking about health in general. Of it's course. like just like the desire to kind of shush it away mm-hmm. is I don't know where that came from in our culture but it's like we should talk about so that we can feel less fearful of it it's here so let's just invite it in one thing i mean i don't know what your background is i assume you're just african-american is that correct 
Well, yeah, so that means it gets muddy, but African-American is what I primarily claim. My great-grandmother was Native American. Okay. My, I, but I, my, my grandmother lived in St. Thomas for some time, so we've got some roots there. It's just St. Thomas, Jamaica? No, U.S. Well, U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay. So there's like some feeling. So you were Caribbean like, blood in U.S. Autumn. Exactly. Dope, exactly. Dope, dope. <laughs> so you know, I'm just a mutt, but. <laughs> but um, my point was like one thing that is universal about black communities on both sides of the Atlantic, whether they be Caribbean, African, or African American, is the politics of respectability. And how one as a black person has to be seen or has to be seen to behave as immaculately as possible. It's drilled into us by our parents and it's expected of us by wider society. Because the minute we are vulnerable, the minute we are angered by somebody's racist behavior, it's jumped on. And we're painted as intimidating, angry, noisy threat to fragile white folks and I feel like having the label of autism is seen as something that disrupts what our parents believe it disrupts basically their politics of respectability it's seen as a stigma because they see us as less than perfect. That's why I feel there's such a stigma about the autism spectrum and neurodiverse conditions within the black community. That gave me chills. (laughs) Sorry, I got there eventually, but it took me a while to get out my words. Yeah, that that was really well put, I think. I promise I'm far more eloquent than I appear to be. <laughs> now look, you're putting all this perfect pressure on yourself. I think that was great. <laughs> that was really, really, yeah, that was really provocative. Yeah, that's a lot of, because there's all these, it's hard to map <laughs> all the thoughts and like condense them. You know, they're all strung out everywhere. But yeah, that was really, really succinct. Yeah. The other thing... I'm kind of talking about this season, talking to Black men, is just defining masculinity and whether you feel limited by it and how, how you have, how you define it. Huh? How long have you got? <laughs> Again, there is the pressure of being a Black man, but there's also the pressure of being a Black man, a Black Caribbean man, specifically a black Jamaican man. Mm-hmm. And that is a whole different thing because we're seen as hypersexual, mm. um, father of multiple children that mm. we don't take care for. There's all those negative perceptions of Jamaican men. We're fetishized by alabaster women, seen as inherently criminal, which again plays into the whole respectability politics and so on and so forth and obviously there's all of that pressure we're seen as like inherently homophobic as well that there's a whole discussion to be had about how homophobia the rampant homophobia in the caribbean was birthed out of 
European Christian colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. But again, that's a different episode. So yeah, we're seen as inherently <laughs> homophobic. So, but I've never like lived my life by those stereotypes or tried to subscribe to those stereotypes. Masculinity for me is just living to be the truest. Ugh, one second. Masculinity for me is just basically existing and living to be the most authentic version of oneself. For me personally, I mean, I'm a massive nerd. I enjoy anime. I enjoy tokusatsu, which is like uh, Japanese live action special effects dramas, uh, like Super Sentai, which Power Rangers is based on, so on and so forth. Godzilla mm-hmm. movies, kaiju movies, that's all tokusatsu. Um, again, me explaining what tokusatsu is, whole different episode. So yeah, <laughs> but I sometimes, well, actually not sometimes, I watch RuPaul's Drag Race like extensively. <laughs> Like, I'm a massive fan of that, despite being very, very, very much straight. Like, I cannot stress that enough. I'm not <laughs> stressing it just because I watch Drag Race, but I'm just saying, like, when when people find out that I do like it, they're like, wait, what? But you're straight. And I'm yeah. like, it's theatre. Like, I love the theatrics <laughs> of it. I did drama in secondary school. Um, Like, I love the theatrics of it. So, yeah. But at the same time, like, I'll go to the gym, like, six days a week. I very much like football or soccer, as you'd call it. I like mm-hmm. basketball, despite being a long-suffering New York Knicks fan. But that's, again, different discussion <laughs> for a different episode. So, yeah. Yeah, I I've just never don't really... think Dumb? you've never really... Yeah, I've never really subscribed to, like, being this macho man or subscribing to toxic masculinity because, like, that's boring, man. Like, yeah. Live life by say... your own rules. Yeah, I was going to say, I just feel like masculinity in itself, maybe similar to femininity, but it doesn't, I mean, I think the masculinity side is so much worse because it doesn't leave space for for men to be soft and it doesn't leave space for men to be vulnerable. So it just, it just makes it out that you guys always have to be fit and strong and like you said, like have this sexual prowess. And I think that's so unfair. Yeah, it's super unfair. I mean, whether we like live up to that or not, and about like being soft and vulnerable, I can be at times, but usually I am very, very much like very straight laced, quite aloof, which again plays into toxic masculinity. But I'm not like that because I'm subscribing to toxic masculinity. That's just literally my character. Yeah. Because I'm very much a misanthrope. I live in a European country, and I'm just like I just keep myself to myself, basically. I only have a couple more questions. I was wondering, well, I'm like a two-parter. What's something maybe you wish people would know about autism or what do you love most about your autism? Ooh, that's a, that's a, you know what? I've never really thought about that. I feel because I have such difficulty forming like social relationships and with social interaction, I feel mm-hmm. like what I love most about my autism is that the friends I have formed while being an autistic black man are like friends I'll have for life. So when I, when I form a bond with someone, I know it's a genuine bond mm-hmm. that I'll hold for life. And it gives me a perspective on like, I feel like it gives me a different perspective on social relationships and only forming relationships with people, whether romantic or platonic with people that will reciprocate what I put in mm-hmm. and who are genuine individuals as opposed to like obfuscating certain characteristics, less than same characteristics of their behavior, 
I feel like it's made me a very good judge of character. Almost. Yeah. Kind of like, <laughs> kind of like how they call Inspector Deck, like the human lie detector. Sorry for the Wu-Tang reference, but again, oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. Like I'm a massive hip hop head, but um, again, you being from New York, I imagine you are too. So but again, different discussion for a different episode. Different, different episode. We have so many more episodes to record. <laughs> Man. Yeah. That's a that's that's a good. I like those things. Mm, Did sure. you do you ever feel or have you seen? We talked about the the lack of representation in um, love on the spectrum. But do sure. did you have you seen media or found places that you do feel? I mean, you mentioned some earlier, like the blogs. But have you seen representation in media that felt inclusive of people of color on the spectrum? Okay, so the example I'm going to use is, again, going to expose what a massive, like, dork I am, nerd I am. But I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the 2017 Power Rangers reboot movie, Billy in that movie, who was played by RJ Seiler, is it pronounced, or is it Kyla? I can't remember how it's I can't remember how his surname is pronounced. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> but yeah, so that character, Billy, who was pretty much the protagonist of that film, as far as I'm concerned, he was an authentic portrayal of a black man on the spectrum. Albeit, obviously, mm-hmm. he was a teenager in the film. I'm very much not a teenager anymore. But yeah, that episode... I'm Sorry, one second. That movie really resonated with me because of that, because I'm like it was so unusual to see an authentic well-written black autistic character that didn't rely on any of the well-trodden tropes or stereotypical patterns of behavior that are usually ascribed to people that are on the spectrum when they are portrayed in media in fictional media yeah sorry i got there eventually <laughs> no, <answer>. that's <laughs> that was you're fine. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen that. I like fell off once Tyring just got off the TV, I like stopped watching it. So I need to all this new stuff is just <laughs> you know what? Some of this it's new stuff's actually stuff. pretty good. Okay, I'll have to tap back in. So the last question I ask people is what brings you peace? And I cause I I ask this question because I feel like oftentimes we can get so caught up and think life can feel so hectic. And I think especially right now, people kind of feel like they're at a loss of control. And so I just ask, what brings you peace? And it can be anything. Uh, does it have to be one answer or can I give several? You can give several. All right. Number one, Dipset. Like Cameron, Jim Jones, their music is just... Beautiful yeah. hit makers production, just uh, just the entire aesthetic, the pink, the macho ness, just the toxic masculinity. Even though I'm not supposed to like like that, I just that Harlem, that 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 mid two thousands Harlem toxic masculinity is just yes, <laughs> like the drug, the, the drug and the coke raps. Yeah, Cameron, Jim Jones, Jewels, just like every like every time I see. Every time I see the feds, so feds is a slang word for police over here, just mm-hmm. police in general. Like every time I see the feds on road, like I just shout squally in my head because of the because of the Jewel Santana song. 
So yeah, um, listening to Dipset um, brings me peace. Hip hop in general, like I I listen to a lot of underground rap, but mm -hmm. like I very very much lean towards East Coast. I don't know if that's because I've got fam in NYC that put me onto shit when I was younger, but like East Coast rap is very very like everything from Tribe Called Quest, MF Doom. Jamal from Illegal, he's from Philly. The Roots, obviously Philly mm -hmm. too. Helter Skelter, so all of the all of the boot camp click. Yeah, Helter Skelter, Black Moon, Smith and Wesson, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, all that stuff. That brings me a great amount of peace. Obviously Wu Tang, as I said before, massive massive amounts of peace. Reading brings me a lot of peace. So the works of Thomas Sankara, Franz Fanon, Franz Fanon. Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, to Kimberley Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, Maya Angelou, like a lot of post-colonial nonfiction and a lot of the writings of like black female intellectuals, black women intellectuals, as 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 the previously mentioned name, Angela Davis. That brings me a lot of peace. Yeah, I know. I just like riled off a lot of American. These writers. are all good. <laughs> well. I'm biased. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I write off a lot of American writers. There are like, obviously, British writers I read as well. But yeah, that brings me peace. Anime brings me peace. Specifically, mecha anime like Gundam, uh, Macross, that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's all the stuff that brings me peace. I love that. that oh, and my grand and my, and my grandmas. I love speaking to my grandmothers. I absolutely love speaking to my grandmother. There's nothing better than speaking to old Jamaican women. They are actually the best. The best. Beyond Ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me, Taylor Camille. A variety of the series artwork shared here and on our Instagram, at Beyond Ourselves, are created by Carmen Johns and Sierra Hood. My hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind. I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at and subscribe and share if you haven't already.